Welcome to Human Matters. I'm Deborah Stone, coming to you from the studios of the Australian Catholic University. Human Matters is a podcast that explores the new insights that research brings into how we understand what it is to be human. Few topics stir the passions as much as religion and politics, so much so that they used to be the two subjects banned from polite conversation. When religion and politics are combined, the potential for conflict increases exponentially. And nowhere has that combination been more dramatic than in Iran, the focus of today's edition of Human Matters. 2019 marks 40 years since the Islamic Revolution, which overthrew the Shah and established the Islamic Republic of Iran, the world's largest and probably most powerful theocracy. Strict Islamic law was enforced and much Western culture was purged. Internationally, Iran has fought a sustained war against Iraq and continuing hostility from the West. Sanctions were only lifted in 2015 following the Iran nuclear deal and that detente is now at an end, US President Trump withdrawing from the deal. Into its second generation, the Islamic Republic of Iran is still going strong but there are threads of opposition and possibilities for change. ACU Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations, Dr. Nasser Gobadzada, researches opposition in Iran, and he joins us on the podcast today. Welcome to Human Matters, Nasser. Thanks, Deborah, for having me. Can you begin by summarising for us the ideology and approach of those who established the Islamic Republic of Iran with the revolution 40 years ago? Well, uh the, one of the key features and characteristics of the 20th century was that uh, many utopian visions were prevailing throughout the 20th century. And Muslim world was not an exception. There were many of these Western-rooted utopian visions like nationalism, liberalism, communism, Marxism, all enter to the Muslim world. But because of their failures, there was a, this sort of indigenous local form of utopian vision emerged under the banner of what we know as Islamism right now. And in Iran, we had that Shiite version of Islamism, which was basically based on the idea that Islam includes all solutions to the every problem and it's a very comprehensive, all-encompassing uh, religion which could uh, give us guidance for the governance, for the social matters, for everything that we need from that. And if we apply the Sharia law, if we apply the Islam in its full capacity, then we will be able to, to, to build a better life in this world as well as to secure our better being in the next world in the hereafter. So that was the theory. How did it work out in practice? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, somehow disappointing because this lived experience of the Islamic State, particularly Iran's case, was an exception because Iran was the only country in the Muslim world back in 1970s which the, in which the Islamists succe successfully toppled down the Pahlavi regime and created, established this uh, Islamic State. And unfortunately, people suffered a lot and still suffering from the consequences of that utopian vision. 
because in practice it led to the emergence of a totalitarian regime which was controlling every aspects of the life from the beginning of the morning when you wake up in your bed there is some rules and regulations imposed by the government under the banner of religion till the night that you come back to the your bed again there are rules and regulations for every aspects of your life but uh, there is a unintended consequences of this lived experience, which has been obviously a bitter experience for many people uh, in Iran. And that's that there is a sort of ironic secularism emerging from that because that utopian vision, which was failed, uh, I mean, doomed to be failed from the begin, beginning, has disillusioned many people of all the sorts of the promises that Islamists made. And now there are more inclination and desire to have more secular political system rather than Islamic one. So there's actually been a reaction against the sort of conservative government, governmental Islam, which was the vision of the revolution. Exactly. And what happened particularly in mid-90s, uh, 1990s, was that there was this religious reformation movement emerged from the lived experience of the Islamic State in Iran, that they uh, revised that the many uh, advocates of these religious reforms were the part of the establishment of the Islamic State. They were uh, accompanying Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic State in 1970s and 80s. They helped the institutionalization of the Islamic State. But uh, since they lived practically the consequences of practicing the idea of the Islamic State, they revisited their ideas, their conceptualization of religion, politics, religion, state relationship. And now they are offering a new reading of religion and Islamic theology or Shia theology, which is promoting a form of indigenous secularism, a form of separation of state apparatus, not politics, because religion, they their argument is that religion is a political. It should be in the civil society, in the public sphere, but it could be different from I a mean, combination of the state apparatus and their religion. So they are promoting by using the scripture, the religious texts like Quran or Hadiths, saying that what will benefit both religion and politics is the separation of state apparatus and religion. So this is a reform from inside. It is a reform that is fundamentally Islamic. It's Shia. It subscribes to the same core beliefs mm. as the Islamic State, but it's looking to make the relationship between religion and the apparatus of the state certainly looser. Exactly. At least, I mean, uh, there is a difference between what they are arguing with the, uh, the kind of secularism that we know coming from the West, based on the Western experience. And of course, there are diversity of the secular forms of the secularism in the West as well. But the motivations that they have uh, is more to secure religion from politics. If we look to the Western context, particularly in the 17th, 18th centuries, it was more the political concerns that they argued, like uh, 17th century John Locke, philosopher John Locke, I mean, he argued, he made a case for secularism because of making a peaceful public sphere in the political area. He was a political philosopher, not theologian. But most of those who are promoting the secularism in Iran and the Shia context, they are religious philosophers, they are religious reformists, that they have concern for religion. And uh, a big part of their argument is that religion has suffered 
more than politics from this lived experience of uh, Islamic State. And that instead of increasing religiosity among people, instead of making a better life and the next worldly promises for the people, the lived experience of the Islamic State has been has proven to be detrimental to the religion more than anything else. Is that because when religion is imposed upon people, they are actually less likely to take it on and truly make it part of their lives? Exactly. That's what has happened in Iran. I mean, if you go back to the 1970s, 60s, religion, and unfortunately in a more fanatic and radical ways, is very strong among Iranians. And that's why they supported Khomeini's discourse of Islamism and all those the consequences that came after the establishment of the Islamic State. But now it has radically changed. And I would say that Iran, from a cultural perspective, is the most secular country in the region because they have this lived experience under the imposed Sharia law. And there is a huge resistance against any kind of the imposing Sharia. And the other thing which I think happened in a very organic way was that when the uh, Islamic State came to the power and the ruling clergy started ruling under the banner of the religion, uh, the diversity of the ideas among the clerics emerged as well. It was somehow obvious that there is no one single version of the Shia. I mean, there are different ideas about the how to practice Sharia. And that idea showed that we cannot say that this is just one true version of the Sharia and there is always, I mean, different versions. And it cannot be applied as a state law. State law should be just one fixed Law, but Sharia law is very flexible because there are different people, there are different clerics. Their understanding of the Sharia law differs from one person to another but person. But do they accept that there are differences or do they all think that, yeah, there are differences, but I've got the right one? That's basically their claim. But uh, because of the, I mean, this is a centuries-old tradition. You cannot get rid of them overnight. It's not easy. That's one of the things that I think that is less uh, studied in the Western context, particularly in English language context, that Khomeini's discourse of the governmental Shiism was the marginal discourse within the Shia discourse, within the Shia Shiite world back then in the 1970s. And still, the alternative understanding of religion, particularly the traditional understanding of Shiism, which keeps distance from the state apparatus, is very strong, strong tradition in, in, in Iran. And there are many people who are the followers of the different religious authorities within Iran and even from Iraq because there is this transnational com, uh, connections between the Najaf Seminary in Iraq and the uh, Qom Seminary in Iran as well. So, so that traditional um, form of Shiism which is separate from the state, that's what sometimes is called quietism. Yeah. Right, but I think you don't like that term. No, I have. It's uh, but two uh, famous words that have been notions have been used is quietism or apolitical, which I think it's uh, it doesn't uh, exactly uh, represent the reality because the clerics and the Shiite. Uh, community have uh, always been political. They have engaged, been engaged in politics, but as a as a as a part of the civil society, not as a uh, as a f in, in the form of political party, which is aimed towards gaining power and seizing the state apparatus. So that's a big difference. That Khomeini somehow departed from the traditional uh, uh, orthodoxy of the Shiism. 
And the idea is more entrenched because it has got very strong theological roots as well. I don't know, I will briefly tell that in the uh, 12er Shia, which is the main uh, branch of Shiism and dominant in Iran, there, are, there is the belief that there are 12 imams, uh, infallible imams after Prophet Muhammad, who were supposed to be the caliphs, the, the leader of the uh, Muslims, but they were deprived of their rights by the, the caliphs. And the last one, it is believed that is still alive, who went to the hiding in 941, and it's a messianic figure. From the 941, there was this idea, and it's entrenched in the Shiite theology, that the right to rule is belongs to the to the hidden imam, to the infallible imam, and whoever who occupies the leadership, political leadership position, is occupying uh, the position and the rights of, or violating the rights of the hidden imam, the, the, this messianic figure. And this was the prevailing theology up to the 1970s when Khomeini articulated this notion of the Walayat Faqih, which claims that we are representing the hidden imam and he took, the over, he took over the political leadership in 1970s. Right. And you said that although the purpose of the Islamic revolution was this very strong, um, fundamental Islamism, in practice, Iran is actually more secular than most other Islamic countries today. What do you mean by that? Uh, by secular, I meant that more to referring to the culturally. Uh, because they have suffered from imposing religion, so they have kept distance from the whatever that the Islamic State, it's a form of somehow resistance towards the statehood, the, 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 the ruling clergy. And that's why, I mean, for example, the Iranian government is very suppressive when it comes to the Baha'is uh, people in, in Iran. But if you go to the people. I mean, they don't care who is Baha'i, who is Christian. And even I tell this story all the time that if you want to do a shopping in Tehran, people would recommend you to do shopping from a minority groups because they are more trustworthy. They don't cheat because Muslims have this reputation, unfortunately, that they cheat a lot, at least inside Iran. But they would recommend you to do the business with the minority groups while in the the traditional uh, uh, Sharia, it is forbidden to do with the business if there is a possibility of doing with the business with the with the uh, with the with Muslims. So, because the Islamic State has imposed these ideas, there is a resistance and backlash to that idea. But from another point of view, we can say that Iran is a secular as well, even in terms of the state policies. Because what happened is that after revolution, uh, just a, a few years after revolution, the ruling clergy realized that it's impossible to practice Sharia in its full capacity and, and uh, its in, in comprehensive way within the modern state apparatus. What they did, uh, there is this idea, that notion that Khomeini articulated in 1986, which is called Fekhol Maslaha, or Expedience Jurisprudence, which says that whenever that the interest of state requires, we can put on hold or violate the basic rules of the Sharia law. If you read Khomeini's uh, book, which is the, the, the main platform of the te theoretical platform for the Islamic State, uh, the book of Walayat Faqih, in which he says that the, 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 the ultimate goal of the establishing Islamic State is to practice Sharia. Mm -hmm. 
But later he changed when he faced with the realities of the governance. He changed his idea and he said that the ultimate goal of the uh, Islamic State to preserve itself even if it requires the violation of the basic principles of Islam. Uh, for example, he specifically names that if it is necessary to ask people not to pray, not to fast, if the interest of the state requires that, we are allowed to do that. So the Sharia is not the primary uh, aim of the state. It's just the preserving or maintenance of the state, survival of the state. So the, in that term, you can say that what they conceptualize, particularly scholars like uh, Hajarian, as the self-secularization processes, because of the realities of the governance, they engaged in the self-secularization. So many of the rules and regulations that the Islamic State has been practicing over the last 40 decades, it has got based on more political calculation rather than purely uh, practicing or implementing the Sharia law. So like so many systems, it's become a self-serving system rather than a system that is um, owing something to the ideology that with which it was officially established. Exactly. And that's the key point that has made it possible for the Islamic State to survive. If we compare it, for example, with the Taliban governance in, in Afghanistan in, from 1995 till 2001, one of the reasons that they didn't survive, I mean, was because they were very strict in practicing the Sharia law. But Iranian government and the ruling clergy have been engaged in revising and even, I mean, just putting aside all the things that was necessary to survive the, the modern state in the modern world. So it actually has been going through a lot of changes over the past 40 years. Can you give us examples of things that, ways in which it's changed that affect people's daily lives? Yeah, a lot. I mean, uh, uh, in the surface, they have kept alive the, re the rhetoric, the very fanatical religious rhetoric that they have. But in practice, uh, they have bended over the, all the rules and regulations that they had put in place. I mean, for example, the issue of hijab, if you go now to Tehran today, it is totally different from the images that we have in the West from the hijab issue in Iran. I mean, many people won't practice hijab. Of course, it's not free country. There are many restrictions and rules, and many people get arrested because of not, I mean, uh, considering the, the, the hijab and code of uh, dress code that the Islamic State imposes. But they are open to negotiate somehow, to tolerate some levels of violations of the rules and regulations. And this uh, makes it somehow flexible for in terms of not being too rigid. And because if it was rigidly uh, upholding the rules and regulations that they had set, they, it would be more fragile in comparing with the... In, 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 for the for the I mean the resistance that it back uh, promotes from the people. So you've described a situation where the stated ideology of the state and the actual practice is quite divergent. Mm. Um, can you see a situation where the um, reforms actually came in through a peaceful change within the system, or do you think there will always be this? big divergence between theory and practice? I think the, 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 uh, the, the, the ruling clergy has made it clear that they won't negotiate some sort of fundamental changes. It's one of the things, I mean, one of the important mechanisms to somehow 
develop a form of radical changes, meaningful changes, is elections. And with the elections, they are very careful that the electoral procedures and electoral institutions are just only capable of making some policy reforms, which is essential for the survival of the regime, because whenever that they want to bend over the, bend their, the rules and regulations or also to somehow compromise some levels of the policy with the international community, in the, in the foreign policy or in the domestic policies, they do it through the elections. But when it comes to the changing or reforming the structures so that there could be a, a, a chance of transition to democracy, then they are very resilient. They don't have any, they, they haven't shown any sign of being open to negotiation, particularly during the uh, the reform era, which started from 1997 with the Khatami's presidential election till 2005. There were many efforts on parts of the reformists to introduce some structural reform to the electoral system, to the political system, so that it could be more uh, democratic uh, practice within the system. But the ruling clergy, particularly the theocratic component of the ruling clergy, showed that they are not open to make any compromises or even to negotiate about those, those issues. And as long as uh, there is no negotiation and compromises in terms of the structure, because structure by its nature is anti-democratic. You cannot have a democratic procedure within that structure in which the Walayat Faqih, the Guardian Council, are the key or the main power holders. If those areas are not open to negotiation and uh, compromises, then there won't be any meaningful and fundamental changes. And what effect is what's going on externally going to have on this? We saw the end of sanctions, we saw the nuclear deal, and now mm. we've seen Trump tearing that up and mm. coming out with very strong anti-Iran rhetoric. Is that going to have an effect on the likelihood of reform in Iran? Yes, and unfortunately, negative effect. I don't think that it... Uh, I mean, I, and uh, from the beginning, unfortunately, the international community, particularly Western countries, hasn't helped the democracy-seeking efforts inside Iran. And now with the nuclear deal in 2005, there was high hope that there will be changes. And when it opens up with the relationship with the Western, with the international community, there is a chance that there will be a bigger middle-class section and there will be economic flourishing and all those things. And it will facilitate the possibility of democratization in the long run. But this hostility, particularly the latest one by Trump administration, doesn't help at all, particularly because not only it deprives people from the many basic human rights tools, I mean, like the medicine and all those things which happens, which comes with the sanctions, but also it gives the uh, an excellent and compelling excuses to the ruling clergy to suppress any kind of democracy seeking because there is this rhetoric that we are in war with the international community, particularly with the West. So that's very basic of the politics that when you have an enemy, you cannot, I mean, you can easily suppress any kind of the disagreement, dissidents within the country. And I think that's giving uh, a great deal of uh, excuses to the ruling clergy to suppress this kind of things. And the other thing is that it somehow, particularly the Trump case, Trump policies, 
approve what the ruling clergy has been saying that the international community, particularly West, is not trustworthy. They are not honoring their commitments. And all these discourses doesn't help the democracy-seeking forces, which is somehow more uh, associated with the West and modernity rather than the local uh, indigenous form of the politics, which clerics are promoting as an alternative to the Western-oriented politics. So after a process which has allowed some reform in Iran and some hope for a, a gentler kind of regime, we're now seeing ourselves going backwards towards the problems of the early Islamic revolution. And let's hope it doesn't take another 40 years before we get some progress on that. Nasser, so. thank you very much for being part of Human Matters today. And thanks too to Al Novaleso, our um, producer who stepped in on the board today. Um, if you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to review and rate it so that other people can find it. I'm Deborah Stone, and you've been listening to Human Matters. <laughs>